The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity featuring Dr. Bruce Cree from the UCSF Weill Institute for Neurosciences at the University of California, San Francisco, and Dr. Lauren B. Krupp from the NYU Grossman School of Medicine MS Comprehensive Care Center. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash FUM860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, welcome to Exploring the Convergence of Advances in S1P Receptor Modulation with Progress in Understanding Brain Atrophy and Cognition Measures in Multiple Sclerosis. So, recognizing the rationale behind S1P Receptor Modulation for MS Management. Long-term benefits of early initiation of high-efficacy therapy in patients with multiple sclerosis are supported by several recent real-world studies that have demonstrated advantages of early initiation of high-efficacy treatments in persons with MS. Several studies are summarized here. A large international multi-site study found that patients with relapsing MS who started treatment with either fingolimod, alemtuzumab, or natalizumab had a lower risk of conversion to secondary progressive MS compared with patients who initiated treatment with either glutaramiracetate or interferon beta. Another study, which was a retrospective international observational study, found that high-efficacy therapy commenced within the first two years of disease onset was also associated with less disability six to ten years later than when commenced later in the disease course. The registry study found that the probability of a six-month confirmed EDSS score uh, worsened and lower probability of first relapse in patients who had started a high-efficacy DMT uh, as first-line therapy compared with a matched comparable sample who had started a medium-efficacy therapy. And two recent European studies found that early treatment with highly effective DMTs were more effective in controlling disability progression over time compared with an escalation approach. So what about S1P receptor modulators? Well, several drugs have been developed and are now approved for treatment in relapsing and progressive forms of multiple sclerosis. And the approved drugs include fingolimod, saponimod, ozanimod, and ponesimod. Amicilimod is in clinical development. There are lots of roles of S1P modulators in individualized patient care. Uh, these drugs can be used as immunomodulators. They're once-daily uh, oral dosing. They're high efficacy. Several are considered to be next-generation therapies, and they have potential positions as either first-line, second-line, or even as rescue therapies. Now, S1P1 is a key receptor involved in lymphocyte trafficking. This receptor is expressed on the surface of lymphocytes, and in this, in, when exposed to S1P receptor modulators, is internalized. As a consequence of the receptor becoming internalized, the lymphocytes are retained within lymphoid organs. And as a consequence of that, you can see a decline in lymphocyte counts in peripheral blood. This is presumed to be the mechanism by which lymphocyte trafficking is controlled with all of these therapies. Now, several other S1P receptors are present, and they are present in other organ systems. S1P1 is present not only uh, in the lymphoid tissue, but it's also present uh, in neurons. It's present in the cardiovascular system. It's present in the endothelium system as well. S1P2 receptors are present on neurons, astroglial cells, microglial cells, and oligodendrocytes, as well as smooth muscles and moderate uh, vascular tone there. And they also influence endothelial permeability. 
S1P3 receptors are, again, not only present within the cells of the central nervous system, but they're also present in the cardiovascular system, and they are involved in cardiac conduction, as well as mediating a smooth muscle tone and endothelial permeability. S1P4 is found almost exclusively within lymphoid tissues, and S1P5 is found on oligodendrocytes as well as natural killer cells. So one can imagine that an S1P receptor modulator that binds to one or more of these receptors could have different effects in different organ systems. Adverse events have been associated with fingolimod and are attributed to off-target modulation of some of these S1P receptors. Now in terms of the cardiac system, S1P1 is responsible for the first and second degree AV block that we see uh, with fingolimod as well as the other S1P receptor modulators. However, interaction with S1P3 receptors uh, results in potential cardiac arrhythmias, and therefore this particular product is contraindicated in patients who've had a recent MI, unstable angina, stroke, TIA, decompensated heart failure, class 3 or class 4 heart failure. And in addition, hypertension uh, can potentially be a contraindication as well. And this is thought to be modulated primarily through S1P2 and S1P3 receptors. Macular edema, well recognized uh, with all of these products. Uh, it's unclear exactly which receptors are involved, although probably S1P1. And S1P1 uh, decreases retinal ganglial cell death and experimental glaucoma in the rat. And S1P2 has pathological, is associated with pathologic retinal angiogenesis in rodents. Now pulmonary function tests can be affected as well uh, through S1P receptor modulation. And this has been well documented uh, uh, for several of these products, but in particular with fingolimod. And it is thought to be mediated via S1P2 and S1P3 receptors. So here's a depiction of the various products and their various uh, selectivity. S1, uh, fingolimod being the first S1P receptor modulator does not have much in the way of S1P2 activity, but potentially some of its off-site effects are modulated through other S1P receptors. Saponimod and Ozanimod were both developed to have selective uh, occupancy for S1P1 and S1P5. And Panesimod, the most recent uh, product developed, has uh, reactivity only for S1P1. Efficacy data is going to be summarized for each of the products in the next several slides. Uh, this uh, data should be familiar for all of you. Fingolimod has been shown to significantly reduce the annualized relapse rate, decrease the risk of three-month confirmed disability uh, progression, as well as the number of uh, new and enlarging lesions on T2-weighted imaging and contrast-enhancing lesions. And this is well documented for multiple phase three clinical trials, as well as several additional uh, uh, studies that followed after uh, the product was approved. Ozanimod was approved uh, based on two uh, phase three clinical trials and like uh, fingolimod uh, has significant reductions in terms of the annualized uh, relapse rate as well as development of new and enlarging lesions and contrast enhancing lesions. Unlike fingolimod, both clinical trials for ozanimod were uh, in using an active comparator with interferon beta-1a whereas the two uh, freedom studies with fingolimod were, in fact, placebo-controlled trials. Now, there's additional long-term data on safety and efficacy of ozanimod and relapsing MS, and this is the uh, Daybreak uh, study. 
And what you can see here are the adjusted annualized relapse rates for patients who had started on interferon and switched to ozanamod, those who had stayed on ozanamod, those who were on continuous ozanamod, and those uh, in the overall all-told uh, uh, daybreak study. And you, see, you can see these uh, annualized relapse rates are really quite low. And this bespeaks to long-term efficacy on ozanamod in terms of preventing uh, relapses in relapsing forms of MS. Now, penesimod uh, was also recently approved, and a large uh, phase three study was conducted compared to uh, teraflunamide, and uh, there, penesimod was found to reduce the annualized relapse rate as well as uh, measures of disease activity by MRI. There was also a, a significant impact on fatigue and brain volume loss uh, with this product as well. Saponamod is the fourth product that's been approved. This one was developed in secondary progressive multiple sclerosis and is in fact approved for relapsing forms of MS. And like the other products has a important effect in terms of the annualized relapse rate and new lesion formation. But in addition, there were significant effects in terms of confirmed disability progression, which is one of the first studies that showed in the modern era an impact of any disease modifying therapy on EDSS worsening in secondary progressive multiple sclerosis. So when you look at these uh, products, they all have uh, fairly uh, comparable efficacy, at least with respect to relapse rate reduction and uh, impact uh, on new lesion formation, or at least they appear to. They haven't been studied head to head. Uh, but across the board, I think all of the products uh, do have a profound effect uh, in terms of MS-related disease activity. And so selection of these treatments is often based on, on safety considerations. All of these products have a risk of some degree of hepatic injury. Uh, they should not be used uh, during pregnancy. There is a risk of increasing blood pressure. There are potential respiratory effects. They've all been associated with macular edema. Uh, one has to be careful about use of vaccination in these products, and uh, most of them to date have been associated with development of opportunistic infections, including disseminated zoster and progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, as well as cryptococcal meningitis. For saponamod, ozanamod, and uh, penesimod, uh, uh, as well as fingolimod, uh, there is risk of bradyarrhythmias, and fingolimod has been in particular associated with cutaneous malignancies, a risk of rebound disease activity following discontinuation, and, and uh, posterior reversible uh, encephalopathy. So common adverse reactions include transaminase increases, headache, diarrhea, cough, and influenza, as well as sinusitis and pain for fingolimod, headache and hypertension for saponamod, rare risk of seizures with that product as well, Ozanamod's been associated with infection, uh, orthostatic hypertension, back pain, and hypertension, and penesimod's been associated with upper respiratory tract infections and hypertension. So some of the practical issues here, uh, there are assessments that need to be made in advance, including complete blood count, a cardiac evaluation, which in many patients with relapsing MS is as simple as obtaining a cardiac history and an EKG, checking liver function tests, making sure there are no contraindicated concomitant medications, making sure patients are up to date with your vaccinations, including COVID vaccine, uh, performing an eye assessment on the patients, and for saponamod assessing the CYP2C9 genotype. Several of the products have titration, uh, meaning these medications can be administered at home without uh, first dose observation, 
but first-dose observation uh, can be used in patients with certain conditions or, and is indicated for fingolimod. So there are some contraindications other than hypersensitivity, and these are listed here. I won't uh, go into great detail as they have been briefly mentioned before. Uh, there are a couple of peculiarities here. I'll just draw your attention to severe untreated sleep apnea and concomitant MAOI use for ozanamod. And I think uh, these uh, contraindications are simply based on the way that that particular clinical trial uh, was designed. And I, I think uh, additional studies are currently being done to address uh, these contraindications. I want to mention something about SARS, uh, COVID-2, uh, vaccination, and S1P receptor modulation. I've got data here from two studies uh, that have uh, shown uh, deleterious effects, at least in terms of what we can measure uh, in terms of antibody production in the setting of S1P receptor modulation. Uh, there also seem to be impacts in terms of uh, T-cell responses with these products as well. And this raises the question uh, whether patients who are treated with these drugs and who have been vaccinated for COVID, in fact, have immunity against COVID. Uh, of course, we won't be able to prove that without extended epidemiological data. But at this point, the immunological data does suggest that vaccine efficacy is attenuated with these products. And this raises the question about what to do in patients who are currently treated with these drugs uh, or in patients who are considering initiation of these disease-modifying therapies. Now, uh, therapeutic effects are sustained over the long term with the S1P receptor modulators. And some of that data is presented here. This is from a multitude of studies, uh, many of which have been done in fingolimod with treatment up to eight years, saponimod with treatment up to seven years, ozanimod with treatment for about four years, and ponesimod with treatment about eight years. And we're seeing a very consistent impact in terms of uh, low rates of disability progression with all of these products, low rates of relapsing activity, and a profound effect on sustaining uh, uh, a uh, disease activity-free state with most of these drugs, which is driven by MRI outcome measures. Many of these treatments have also been associated with favorable effects in terms of brain volume changes, and that point is going to be addressed further in the next portion of today's talk. So improvements following switch from injectable disease-modifying therapies to S1P receptor modulators have been shown in, in multiple uh, clinical trials, and there are, of course, lower numbers of lesions, uh, fewer relapses, uh, improved impacts in terms of quality of life, uh, reductions in terms of impact on, on brain volume and preservation of brain tissue. And of course, at the end of the day, that's really what all of this is about. We want to preserve brain tissue in our patients as much as possible and reduce end organ damage as a consequence of the disease. All of these treatments are associated with low adverse event rates, and patients generally tolerate these medications extremely well. So I'm going to uh, pause here and uh, turn uh, control over to my colleague, Dr. Krupp, who's going to speak about novel disease markers and their impact on S1P receptor modulators in MS. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Crete. It's a pleasure to be at this event with you today and to talk about the impact of the S1PR modulators on MS and, um, and on the role of cognition and brain volume. Cognitive problems are quite frequent in MS. 
Neurologists, healthcare providers, patients, families all need to be better informed about the role of cognitive difficulties in people with MS. In 2018, the National MS Society produced some guidelines recommending that uh, there's identification and monitoring of cognition in persons with MS by administering neuropsych testing to patients at baseline and doing this annually after that so that emerging problems can be promptly addressed and adequately treated. Now, whether or not this is universally practical or, or, or even possible is, is another issue, but it, I think it's, a, it's an ideal. At present, uh, only 50% of clinics usually assess cognitive symptoms. And I think one question is how can this assessment be done in an inexpensive way, but still be sensitive and, and usable? It's also fair to ask whether formal comprehensive neuropsych testing is always appropriate or necessary, and whether in fact another approach might be to use a simple, quick screening method uh, so that problems can be identified. When we talk about cognitive impairment, it's important to distinguish symptoms of forgetfulness or cognitive complaints like finding or saying the wrong word versus objective deficits that are re revealed on cognitive testing. So more often than not, when a person complains of difficulties with their memory, most studies have suggested that this correlates more with depressive symptoms. In contrast, if others, a spouse, child, friend, are reporting that the patient is, is having difficulties, that's much more likely to be corroborated on cognitive testing. And when we refer to cognitive impairment, we're specifically referring to poor performance on tests that are relative to healthy, normal people. And this may be either in studies where there are control groups or in the clinical setting when there are tests that have a normative population-based value. As mentioned, it's really important to make a distinction between mood and cognitive dysfunction and to realize that self-reported cognitive complaints are more strongly associated with mood than test performance. And it's really critical for that reason that cognitive assessment be objectively measured. When, when neuropsych testing is done, what we find is that there's an array of, of problems that people may experience. The most common areas of difficulty are attention, and in particular, information processing speed, which some would argue may underlie many of the other problems that are measured but executive functioning, certainly memory and verbal learning, as well as visual learning and perceptual processing are all different domains that can be affected. People who have cognitive impairment experience problems with employment, with driving, social and vocational activities, family, sexual functioning, household functionings, and basically overall quality of life. 
the frequency of impairment is higher in those with progressive disease, as high as 80 to 90 percent in individuals with secondary progressive or primary progressive MS, and much more frequent in people who have had only one event, such as clinically isolated syndrome, where it's been noted in uh, a third of individuals. Over time, with patients who have relapsed and remitting MS, our current methods of measurement show very subtle changes over time. In contrast, when progressive patients are followed, their declines are much more apparent over a short period of, or a short interval. And so this really brings up the question as to whether we are using sensitive enough tools, because it's certainly not the case that you're moving along and suddenly fall off a cliff. It's probably there's a change happening all along, but we may not be able to pick it up. And that brings up the question of how do we screen for cognitive functioning? And there are a variety of different approaches that have been proposed. One quick one is to use the simple digit modality test. That measure literally takes 90 seconds to administer and maybe a minute first to explain and um, less than that to, to add up in your head what the, what the total score is. There are brief batteries, one that's been advocated covering not only cognitive processing speed, which is what the SDMT covers, but also this verbal learning and visual learning is known as BICAMS. That takes 15 minutes a computerized uh, administered processing speed test such as the PST is similar to the SDMT. And then other computerized tests that have very extensive normative comparisons are um, the brief uh, cog state battery and then the traditional neuropsych measures that were developed to be used in MS are the brief repeatable battery and the minimal assessment of cognitive function in MS. Now, neuropsych tests um, are used usually in a paper and pencil form, but more and more we're getting to the point where we're seeing computerized administered tests. These can be very sensitive, can be culturally independent, can be rather uh, less sensitive to practice effects, but um, they require a computer, and they're really more focused on assessing cognitive processing speed rather than other domains. The simple digit modality test is a one-test uh, screen, which is um, used in a lot of research studies, and some outpatient centers are beginning to use it as well. It's uh, pretty easy. The patient is given a piece of paper with a code and, and digits, and they are asked to give you the digit that corresponds to each code on the sheet. So they never have to write, and therefore you don't have to deal with any motor slowing that might be present in the patient. In um, real life, how do we actually help people who have cognitive impairment once we've identified it? Well, Neuropsychological rehabilitation is something that can be offered and has uh, definite benefits. There have been in studies of patients with Alzheimer's, not yet in MS, 
benefits that have been associated with specific dietary changes, um, interventions to help improve functioning at home, uh, memory aids, computer-based training programs, and also certainly trying to help people who are struggling with their memory not get so emotionally distressed that they even worsen their performance beyond what it already is. Um, in the field of cognitive rehabilitation, there have been some benefits demonstrated with different programs on attention and also different um, programs that have tried to show benefits with learning and memory. There's also computer administered cognitive training and the key to these tests are that as you do the measures, the harder, uh, the better you do, the harder the test becomes and that's really how you uh, improve in the same way as uh, exercising physically. The more you push yourself, the better you're, you're going to be. This is just showing that in the Alzheimer population or the elderly population, a, a diet known as the MIND diet actually um, was uh, particularly helpful in de delaying cognitive decline. Well, what about S1PR modulators uh, with respect to imaging measures and molecular markers that co correspond to, to brain health and cognitive functioning? Well, it, a meta-analysis did show that if you take all the disease-modifying therapies compared to no treatment at all, there is definitely a positive effect on um, improvement in cognitive processing speed. And that's true for all the therapies. Uh, this was done um, before some of the newer agents were, were available, and it includes studies from quite a time, uh, quite a bit of time ago, and the different outcome measures of cognition really varied all over the place. But um, we've also seen that there are other measures that can be used to look at brain health. And um, we've seen that um, neurofilaments is one way of, of looking at uh, brain health, and those with higher levels show worse performance on cognitive processing. And levels of um, uh, neurofilament have also been linked to brain volume measures. And uh, these are all uh, indicators of neuronal axonal loss, which in turn corresponds to worse information processing. And it's thought that maybe by combining these circulating biomarkers with imaging measures, we'll have a better ability to determine who's at risk for cognitive decline. Looking at the different um, S1P modulators, uh, we can see that fingolimod has had favorable effects on brain volume, as, we as well as gray matter volume, and thalamic volume, and cortical gray matter volume. So in general, compared to um, the placebo groups, uh, there was less volume loss uh, and, um, with fingolimod uh, than with the comparator. 
Ozanamod compared to interferon beta-1A has also been associated with a, a diminution of brain volume loss or brain atrophy. And that was true both at, for the whole brain at 12 months, for cortical gray matter volume, and for thalamic volume. And you can see in the uh, interferon beta group, uh, pretty substantial between 0.6 and 1 and 1.7% decreases in brain volume that were substantially less in the ozonamod group. And that uh, relative preservation with ozonamod was present at 24 months compared to the interferon as well. A similar um, superiority of preserving brain volume was noted with penosamod when compared to teraflunamod in a phase three in the phase three clinical trial, and similar changes have been noted with um, sapanamod relative to placebo in patients with secondary progressive MS. Fingolimod also had a treatment effect that was associated with a decrease in neurofilament. And again, neurofilaments are viewed as uh, markers of neurodegeneration. And during fingolimod treatment, these levels decreased by 35% um, at, at the 12-month mark. And uh, these levels were also uh, correlated with SDMT values um, and essentially lower neurofilament levels were associated with better cognitive processing speed. The relationships between on-treatment changes in GFP, GFAP levels and clinical outcomes were, have been noted in patients with relapsing remitting MS in the Sunbeam trial with ozanamod, and we can see that um, GFAP is basically a measure involving CNS cell communication and blood-brain barrier function, and it can be a biomarker useful not only for clinical relapse, but for MRI disease activity. And associations between the median percentage change from baseline in GFAP level and other uh, disease biomarkers were evaluated after 12 months of treatment with ozonamod and interferon. And at, 12, at month 12, the GFAP levels were significantly lower in the ozonamod versus interferon group. We've, we also see with ozonamod um, a relative um, better performance in the SDMT compared to the interferon. Now, I don't think this should be interpreted as meaning that this is a drug that's going to make you smarter. One of the things about these measures is that there's a tremendous practice effect. So I would interpret this relative improvement is basically suggesting more likely that you're having a slowing of decline. And so the benefit of practice is more apparent when you don't see um, brain damage accumulating. So in, a, in the Ozanamod group at six months, there were um, 
definitely ca uh, improvement categorically in, with the ozonamide group uh, compared to the interferon group. And similarly, at 12 months, uh, the same pattern was um, maintained with more patients improving uh, on the SDMT and the ozonamide uh, relative to patients in the interferon group and fewer patients declining uh, in the ozonamide relative to interferon group. Brain volume changes were, were measured in relation to the SDMT. And what you can see is that um, once again, there was a relative preservation of ozonamide compared to the interferon and patients um, were improving overall more likely on the SDMT in osanamide relative to uh, interferon. But unfortunately, there wasn't a clear correlation between those patients whose brain volume was preserved and um, improvement on SDMT. And this might be because the relatively short duration of these studies I think over a longer interval of time, I would expect to see a closer correlation between the change in brain volume and processing speed. In the daybreak extension study, um, this involves patients who, were com who completed Sunbeam rolling over into, into a longitudinal follow-up with um, exploratory endpoints, uh, uh, that were measured at uh, 24 months. And what, and what you can see is that more patients on the ozonamide group from the onset had improvement in the SDMT, whereas those patients who start out with interferon and crossed over to ozonamide showed SDMT improvement as well, but not to the same extent as the group that was on ozonamide from the beginning. Uh, in the enlightened study, this will be examining cognitive processing speed changes in relapsed and remitting patients. And they'll be looking at uh, improvements or changes from baseline over a three-year period as the primary endpoint. And secondary endpoints will be changes in MRI measures, patient reported outcomes, time 25-foot gate, and EDSS, as well as safety. This um, you know, positive effect with the S1Ps has really uh, been seen in quite a few agents. And we see, for example, with fingolimod and patients with relapsing MS, um, improvements in the PASAT, which is another um, basically measure of um, complex processing speed or complex attention and basically better uh, scores compared to the placebo group throughout the study. Secondary progressive patients um, treated with saponamod also experienced relative improvements in the SDMT compared to the placebo group. And um, it, a lot of times people have suggested that uh, a change of four or more on the SDMT is a clinically significant improvement. Some would argue that the change really should be higher than that to be clinically significant. 
but particularly if um, there's a sustained improvement, I think we would, most would agree that that's meaningful. And there was um, uh, a higher proportion of patients with improvement and fewer patients with worsening on these measure on the SDMT when you looked at the saponamide versus placebo group. So that's all that I was going to talk about, and I thought it would be a good opportunity then to get into our cases, and we can at that point get into more personalized MS management and the specifics of how we choose agents and how the assessment of a patient's cognitive performance or symptoms may or influence our decisions. So I'm taking it in your hands, Dr. Cree. All right, thank you. Okay, so we're gonna go into the case discussions next. So this is patient AVB, a 28-year-old woman who's referred by her primary care physician. She had signs and symptoms consistent with a partial myelitis. She improved following a short course of intravenous methylprednisolone and following recovery, her EDSS score was one. She had diminished vibratory sensation in her toes. Uh, the MRI findings were consistent with the diagnosis of MS. She had four periventricular lesions, one of which contrast enhanced. Uh, she had three juxtacortical lesions, a posterior fossa lesion and two spinal cord lesions, one which was presumably the cause of her previous partial myelitis. So she met diagnostic criteria based on the 2017 criteria for having multiple sclerosis because she had an asymptomatic GAD-enhancing lesion in addition to the other brain lesions and her myelitis. Her BMI was 27. She had hyperlipidemia. She was being treated with atorvastatin, 10 milligrams. She's also had a history of major depressive disorder, which was currently in remission. She was taking fluoxetine daily. She has a history of migraine headaches and is taking galconazumab, 120 milligrams monthly, and sumatriptan. She is JCV seropositive, and she decided to initiate treatment with glutamine acetate because of the long-term use of this medication in multiple sclerosis, as well as its favorable side effect profile. And she remains stable uh, with several years of treatment. Her uh, annual MRI scan uh, showed no changes over this interval of time. She then began to experience um, symptoms and had two uh, moderate relapses. Each were treated with a, a short course of intravenous methylprednisolone. And the MRI now showed evidence of breakthrough disease activity with three new T2 lesions. Her EDSS, after recovery from these relapses, now had gone up to 2.5. You'll recall that it initially was one. So this was a substantial change in the EDSS, although she's still only moderately impaired with an EDSS of 2.5. She had modified her diet. She'd lost weight. She was no longer taking a statin. And uh, she was also voicing concern about running out of places for self-injection, noting injection divots, as she called them, associated with the glutamine acetate. She does describe increased forgetfulness and decreased attention. And uh, a mocha in the office uh, showed normal cognitive function. But nonetheless, there was a self-report of decline in cognitive function. 
And that takes us to our first polling question, should the patient be referred for neuropsychological testing? Answer A, no, because she's still working without any difficulties. B, no, because her MOCA is normal. Or C, yes, because she reports decline in cognitive function. Polling question number two, switching therapy, what to do next? This patient is seropositive for JC virus antibodies and should we switch her to interferon, to natalizumab, to fingolimod, uzanimab, panesimod, saponimod, teraflunamide, dimethylfumarate, ocrelizumab, ofatumumab, cladribine, or to alemtuzumab. So switching therapies, does switching classes of medication with similar efficacy make sense? Does escalating treatments that appear to be of greater efficacy but have more potential side effects make sense? So continuing this case, we note that she's VZV seropositive. She's had a normal EKG, liver function tests, and CBC. And the patient decided to advance treatment to ozanamod. So this case, I think, uh, really uh, asks uh, some important questions. It's a case of clear breakthrough disease despite use of a platform therapy. And the question is, what do we do in these cases? Uh, here's a patient who's JCV seropositive, so some of our therapies, in particular natalizumab, are uh, relatively contraindicated. Uh, should MRI disease activity alone be used to switch therapies? Is the new gold standard for treatment freedom from disease activity? Uh, is this really the same thing as treating the MRI scan? And how long should a course of treatment be given before concluding that it's suboptimal? And this is one of the things that we just don't have in MS right now, which is a clearly established treatment algorithm, and I think it's an ongoing, unmet need in the MS space. Now going into this case, uh, revisiting the patient, but now assuming that the patient had a more aggressive presentation at a diagnosis. So same, same case, but now instead of an EDSS of 1, we'll switch it to an EDSS of 3, uh, here with uh, bowel, brain, uh, fog, and memory impairment, hand numbness. Uh, she's had an attack in the last month, which is the second or third in the past six months, so a high frequency of clinical relapses over a short period of time. Uh, MRI shows GAD-enhancing lesions, T2 lesions, and a black hole. Some uh, observed atrophy in the cortical gray matter, and I think perhaps most alarmingly here was the SDMT score that was performed for the patient of 46, which is abnormal. This, this patient should have had an SDMT score in the high 50s or, or 60. So she's got uh, MS, but uh, if you will, a more aggressive presentation of multiple sclerosis. And so now the question is uh, what, what to do. Uh, we have to uh, simultaneously address the patient's top concerns and treatment goals. We want to preserve her mobility. We want to improve cognitive functioning if we can or preserve what she's got. Um, what about side effects? We have to get, I think, the MS quickly under control. Um, however, this patient would really prefer to start with the non-biologic treatment due to concerns about safety. And so uh, what are her preferences regarding treatment? Route of administration becomes very important, and this patient would prefer not to self-inject. And so this raises the question, what first-line therapy would you recommend? 
So we do have current guidance on uh, DMTs from the Multiple Sclerosis Coalition. And the guidance, of course, recommends initiation of FDA-approved disease-modifying therapies as soon as possible following diagnosis of relapsing MS. And we should consider highly effective DMTs in newly diagnosed individuals with highly active MS. Fingolimod, saponimod, ozanimod, ponesimod, natalizumab, ocrelizumab, and ofatumumab can all be used as frontline therapy. And of course, there's shared decision. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, I wanted to just challenge a little bit this notion that, um, you know, that these uh, higher efficacy therapies should be restricted to patients with highly active MS, because you very convincingly showed in the beginning of your talk quite a few studies that suggested um, long-term benefit starting with high-efficacy therapy from the beginning as opposed to, say, an escalation approach. And I think that's really um, a challenge because those studies weren't restricting the patients to the highly active ones getting the high-efficacy treatment. And perhaps one way of, of, of dealing with this is recognizing that sometimes you're going to be, if, if you take a high-efficacy approach from the beginning, and the studies that you reviewed so eloquently, I think, make that case, you have to live with the possibility that there are going to be some patients you're over-treating. And, you know, I think that's something that a patient and a clinician need to decide whether or not they can be comfortable with that. Yeah, I I think that's a great point. And, you know, the, the question is, Uh, How do we know uh, what's the best therapy to use for each individual patient? And and currently, we don't have any biological metrics, imaging, prognostic factors of any kind that can really guide uh, that kind of therapeutic decision-making. All all attempts to develop such strategies to date have failed. And uh, so we're left with trying to make the best possible uh, choices here. Uh, these these guidelines here are just that. They're, they're guidance uh, from this, this coalition of, of experts who've made this determination. AAN has its own set of guidelines. Uh, there are other guidelines uh, from Europe, of course, as well, where the indications for use of these products is somewhat different. Uh, so depending on your geographic location, you might have access to some therapies and not others. But, but conceptually, I, I agree. I think, you know, we, we are at a crossroads of what to do with our patients. And I think that the uh, uh, long-used treat-to-target approach, where we initiate treatments with modestly effective but very safe treatments, and then escalate after a product has failed, I, I think we have to kind of change our way of thinking about that. And it's a personal bias of mine, and I don't have overwhelmingly convincing uh, data to indicate that use of a a high-efficacy therapy from the get-go is necessarily, uh, on average, the best possible choice. But I think there is gradual mounting evidence that that may be the case. And so we may be over-treating some patients, but at the same time, preserving function in others who uh, might have experienced irreversible tissue injury as a consequence of use of a lower efficacy treatment. So I, we don't I, have all the answers, obviously, right? Right. No, I mean, again, I, I, I agree totally. And I just, I share some of your same bias. And 
really based on those studies, at least four that you summarized. The, the other point I wanted to make is it's certainly, I can imagine a clinician saying when a patient presents and they have new MRIs, which came up on the slide, you know, I don't want to treat the MRI. I want to treat the patient. And that's a very reasonable and understandable comment. However, the MRI is so much more sensitive to what's going on. And quite frankly, I think both of us would agree that if we had MS, we would not want to have new lesions accumulating. And in fact, from a prognosis point of view, that's probably a poor prognostic factor, particularly, of course, if those lesions end up in the spinal cord. So I think the the, the concept of using um, these measures, um, ancillary tests, to help guide us is not that we're treating the test. We're treating the patient, but we're relying on measures that are just much more sensitive than what the person is experiencing, perhaps. Yeah, I think MRI can can be very uh, potentially very helpful, but it's uh, recent work uh, coming out of our group has suggested that um, intraparenchymal brain lesions may not carry the same prognostic value as what we can see in terms of changes in spinal cord structures, and in particular, loss of spinal cord gray matter uh, as a consequence of um, uncontained relapsing disease activity. Uh, carries a very strong uh, negative prognosis with respect to evolution of secondary progression and, and disability. So I think that the MRI can be very helpful. I also think we've been measuring largely the wrong things, mostly because they've been easier to measure. Looking at spinal cord areas, looking at gray matter within the spinal cord until very recently has been extremely challenging. Uh, but now we can do it, and I, I think that there is something to be learned from these studies which are ongoing right now uh, and need to be replicated in other data sets, of course. But the disability associated with MS that I think we see uh, and on brain MRI as a consequence of uh, ongoing inflammatory disease activity with loss of brain tissue, loss of cortical volume, loss of thalamic volume, an even more sensitive gauge of that type of disability lies within the spinal cord. So we now go on to the key takeaways and audience Q&A. It's a pleasure to be participating in this conference with you all today. And I wanted to um, address some of the things that came up in the chat. One of the points is that the first patient we presented with um, self-reported cognitive symptoms who had a normal MOCA, the polling question asked whether the patient should be referred for neuropsych testing, uh, whether because she was, you know, yes or no, because she was still working without any difficulties or because her MOCO was normal or because she was reporting a decline. And I think if you have the resource, referring patients for neuropsych testing when they are complaining of problems is a very appropriate thing to do. However, patient self-report is usually not that reliable an indicator of cognitive impairment. So it's very important to ask if other family members, friends, or people at work have noticed changes. Now, the um, whole issue of, you know, including cognitive testing is something that was officially recommended by a bunch of uh, uh, groups. And 
the question is, you know, why has there been such a delay in having this implemented? And the reason is that even if we do a brief screening, it takes some time and it's not compensate, uh, reimbursed by third-party payers. I happen to like the SDMT as a quick snapshot. I have the nurse um, administer it. It literally takes 90 seconds to administer, maybe a minute to describe the um, instructions and a minute to score it up. But there's other, you know, screening approaches, including computerized ones. Um, and then the other question that came up is, you know, what do you do when you see these problems that patients are experiencing, whether they've undergone formal neuropsych testing or it's apparent from talking to the family? One of the, uh, there are a number of apps and programs. Uh, I'm fond of Brain HQ, but there are plenty of other ones. And these are good for helping patients improve their cognitive speed and attention. And the key about these computerized um, administered uh, programs is that the better you do, the harder they become. And that's the key to training, basically. And so um, those work better than just uh, passive, say, password puzzles and so forth. Um, so another good question has to do with why um, if the uh, S1P receptor modulators are so effective, you know, why aren't we starting with these first line? Well, I think we should be starting with high efficacy agents first line, of, of which most but not all studies include the S1Ps. And um, the, the, the challenge is that if you're treating with a high efficacy agent to all your patients, there will be some patients who probably don't need it. They could have done just as well with a lesser efficacy medication, perhaps, but we don't have any way of sorting that out. And what we do know is that the long-term outcomes are basically better with uh, higher efficacy medicines. So just to um, wrap up, uh, I think the, the main takeaway here is that think about uh, early treatment with high efficacy agents uh, for better long-term outcomes in terms of disability quality of life. Uh, cognitive functioning is key to our lives. See if you can come up with a way that works in your practice to very briefly screen for it. Or at the very least, if you can't and you're just getting a patient report, try to get some information from family members. And, um, you know, choosing between the different S1P receptor modulators is, is difficult. I think the key to making choices is to look at what's been published, I think, and also what the side effect profile is and, um, you know, how, how, these patients, how these drugs are tolerated. So I want to, um, you know, thank everyone for participating in, in this event. And um, uh, in terms of uh, one last question I, I see came through was specifically, what do I do in, in my clinic? I think I've answered that. I, I use the SDMT, but it's not, um, it bounces all over the place. So I'm not in agreement with that, uh, you know, a change score of four means the end of the world. I think you, it gives you a, a sense of where the patient's at. And um, it's not hard. To, there's the BICAMS has a website that will give you norms. Um, and it's, a, it's an indicator to some extent of 
whether there's some slowness in thinking and a good way of deciding whether or not to do neuropsych testing on that patient. But again, thank you everyone for the participation. There were really great, great questions. I'm sorry if we were not able to, to um, address all of them, but um, uh, we hope this is a useful uh, tool for you and feel free, of course, to download all the materials that Dr. Cree had mentioned. And thank you again for your participation. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash FUM860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.